Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this is our second annual National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. We're going to talk about what is going on in Ottawa today. There is a full agenda of events that are happening. Uh, let's go to Abigail Beaman now, who joins us from Ottawa. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. What does the schedule look like in Ottawa for this event? You know, I think it's uh, similar to places right across the country where there are just a wide variety of events happening, uh, organized by groups both large and small. Uh, the main event this morning is taking place right on Parliament Hill, and that is a youth-led national event. There are uh, speakers, uh, a variety of things happening, and then after that event uh, wraps up, there will be a march from Parliament Hill to a park nearby, and that march will be led by children as well as survivors of residential schools and people are being asked to bring uh, shoes, Indigenous children's uh, footwear, and we, we've seen that in places right across the country. And the aim is that at the end of that march, at the end of that walk, those shoes will be placed on the stage uh, at this park where where the afternoon events are, uh, are kicking off. And that includes a one-hour live broadcast with a focus on hearing stories from survivors. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, those are just a, a couple of the events taking place, but those are, those are the main ones here uh, where I am down on on Parliament Hill, and we are expecting the uh, Prime Minister to make an appearance this afternoon uh, as well. Okay, and just to recap for people here too, this is the second (laughs) annual um, holiday that we are having on this day, but there was a very good reason why this was created. That's right. So second second annual holiday, it was legislated uh, last year, and this was a direct, one of the direct 94 calls to action uh, from the uh, final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was to have this National Day of Reflection. So a, a direct response to one of those 94 calls. Uh, and But the date, September 30th, has been relevant for quite some time because it has been marked and carries weight for for. for the Indigenous community as Orange Shirt Day. So expect to see lots of orange where wherever you are today as well. Uh, and when we talk about a, a holiday, I guess it's worth noting it's a, it's a federal holiday, but whether you are actually able to observe or reflect or off work or school, that really depends on what province uh, you live in and where you work because it's a federally, uh, it's a federal holiday, it applies to federally uh, regulated companies and workers, but of course some provinces have not chosen to sign on and some schools uh, or, or schools and workplaces in those provinces remain open today. Right, okay, so you mentioned the Prime Minister being in Ottawa today, now that's a little different from last year, isn't it, Abigail? <laughs> yes, and, and uh, worth reminding of sort of the the controversy that ensued last year, the first day, uh, the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, the Prime Minister ended up taking a family holiday in Tofino, B.C., heavily criticized for that move, especially because 
This was just a few months after the first suspected unmarked graves were found in Kamloops, B.C., and the Tecumloops First Nation had invited the prime minister uh, to spend the day with them. And he'd received other invitations, of course, from indigenous groups uh, as well. But he went to B.C. and then and then spent it uh, on, on vacation in Tofino. So certainly uh, his office did not want to have a repeat of that. And he has a number of events. I mentioned he's, he's going to be in Ottawa this afternoon, but he started his day in the Niagara region in Ontario at a sunrise ceremony, and he'll be making some comments there uh, later this morning. Okay, and how many people are expected? Is there a large crowd being expected? Uh, that is a great question. We have heard estimates in the thousands, uh, especially I, I noted that in terms of the, the shoes that will be dropped off on the stage. They were talking about uh, expecting thousands, but uh, time will tell at this point. It's still early, so we're going to have to wait and see. All right, but very different tone, it sounds like, which is good for the second annual Truth and Reconciliation Day. Abigail, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. That is Abigail Beeman, our global national correspondent in Ottawa, talking about the events that are going on in that city. Now, there are also events going on in communities right across the country. In downtown Vancouver, there are some big events happening today. In fact, we are going to be hearing all about them uh, with our co-host in our 8 o'clock hour. Wilson Williams is going to be with us talking and telling us about all sorts of different stories, including what is happening this morning and how you can participate. So keep listening to the show this morning for that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This is Mornings with Simi. We were just talking about with Yvonne Palmer about the big changes, potentially, that were announced by Health Minister Adrian Dix yesterday when it comes to our health care system. Uh, there will be new duties for a number of different groups. For instance, pharmacists across the province will be able to administer and renew a much wider range of medicine and prescriptions, meaning you won't necessarily have to go to your doctor to renew a prescription or get something refilled that you'll be able to go directly to your pharmacist. They also talked about having having greater training for firefighters to be able to attend more uh, medical emergency situations. Also, first responders are going to be adding some additional diagnostic testing. So that means more for paramedics to do. So what does that mean, though? Because we already know paramedics are pretty busy. So over the next few days, like into next week, we'll talk about how this is going to impact the, the different groups who are involved in this. But let's start with talking about how paramedics are going to be impacted by this. Joining us is Troy Clifford, president of the union representing paramedics and dispatchers. He's also an active paramedic. Troy, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So first off, what did you think of the announcement? Yeah, so, you know, overall, like, when you talk about a broader perspective, I mean, everybody, I mean, everybody in, in has been waiting for uh, the Health Human Resources Plan that's been talked about for quite some time. Um, so there's some really uh, good announcements in there. Obviously, more doctors is uh, well needed. Uh, I think the uh, the pharmacist stuff and the, and, the, and, the, and the items you just mentioned are, are going to be well received. I think the, the devil's in the details of how will this, plan be operationalized to impact um, human resources and make sure that we have enough um, professionals to do the work 
that uh, it needed in the in the healthcare. And so when it, when you talk about how it impacts us, that's what we're looking at. Yeah. Do you real- do you know yet? Do you have any indication of what this means for paramedics? Yeah, so this was announced uh, last summer that they were looking at expanding scope for all levels of, and initially it was just going to be first responders, and, and we were able to meet with government and the licensing board and say, you know, this needs to be looked at for all levels of licenses, uh, inc- and so additional scope. So what I mean by that is our, our EMRs, our, our primary care paramedics, our advanced care paramedics, and our critical care paramedics need to have more skill sets um, so, that, so we can help our patients. Um, that's uh, clinically needed and it's been well well received. Um, so, you know, the, the, the devil is in the details and how is this going to happen? How are we going to train people? How are we going to pay them for the additional scope and responsibility? All those sorts of things are uh, what we're, we're continuing to work with. So this was announced in December that they were going to add the, they accepted the recommendations of the MA licensing board um, to add the scope to all levels. Um, so, uh, it's not a new announcement. What was announced uh, yesterday was the confirmation of that will be done, and then it'll be funded over the next couple of years to train paramedics and, and some first responders up to the additional scope responsibilities. Okay, but you hit on a key word there, though, Troy, and that is compensation. So we've talked a lot about paramedics having to attract more people to this. Does extra duties, extra work come with extra compensation? Uh, not at this point, it doesn't. But so the additional responsibilities mean that we're going to be uh, clinically looking after patients uh, with more higher levels of skill and potentially longer times uh, uh, in treatment, which is good for patient outcomes and the emergency department and the primary health care system. But what that means is that we're adding more responsibility and not burden because uh, we, we welcome uh, additional skill sets to help our patients, obviously. But when you're adding that on top of a system that's already well undercompensated or, or onto a job and responsibility. You know, we know that 30% of, you know, we're about 30% behind our partners in police and fire and public safety, but also in our healthcare partners uh, and at times right. more than that. So that's going to add an extra burden. Uh, burden's not the right word, I don't think, because we don't consider helping our patients or additional skills. We actually like having that because then we can help our patients more. But, uh, you know, when you add it on already a, a system that uh, we're, we're already in uh, recruitment and retention and underpaid really at the bottom line. Uh, it, it, it's going to prove problematic unless we address those, those uh, wages disparities. I guess I wonder what this would look like then. So by saying we could have paramedics do some more things, does that mean that you, it's not just handing a patient off and having to wait with them, you know, while they get into the, the emergency room? Is there more that paramedics can do to avoid that kind of backup that happens? So that is a, that key component. That's the hope here. Um, what we talked about with our with the ministry, uh, you know, we had a pre-briefing and we've been talking for a while, is, is that we need to defer people away from the emergency departments and the ambulances that, that don't necessarily need to be there. Um, and that's that primary health care model that is talked about there. And the paramedics can be part of that solution with our community paramedic program referral system. So if we can treat or refer people to alternate pathways, that's a good thing. Um, so what they've said to us is we want to work with you, and they also said it to the doctors, the nurses, all the professionals that were included in the pharmacists and that. So the primary health care model and delivery system does work. It works in other jurisdictions, and that's been the vision. It's really how they operationalize, and they made it very clear to all the health unions and, and professions that uh, 
they can't do this without us. So that's a really positive thing. But, you know, we've, we've heard a lot of talk and really it's, uh, they've saying over the next uh, month, we're going to be working with them on how this can operationalize. And I speak specifically for the paramedics of how we can get this training, how it can operationalize, but it can't come without fixing our problems in the ambulance service. Um, so they got to be done in parallel with that. Right. But you do sound a little bit hopeful about this, Troy. Absolutely. I think it's a good thing for, uh, we've been asking for more responsibilities and scope. And I think that will help with some of our well-documented morale issues and confidence in, the, in, in that. So showing, uh, showing the healthcare professionals and the public safety professionals that we're willing to uh, invest in them will do good for the system. So I am hopeful. Yes. All right. Well, that sounds good. Anyway, that's positive. Troy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. That's Troy Clifford, president of the union representing paramedics and dispatchers, also an active paramedic, talking about, you know, he's hopeful. And that's always good to hear when we talk about the paramedic system and the emergency health services. But there is still work to do. Still some questions that need to be answered about this expansion of powers for first responders and for pharmacists. And hopefully this will help ease some of that that clog that happens uh, when paramedics take somebody to the emergency room and then they have to stand around and wait to hand that person off. In the meantime, you know, you could be finding out more about what actually is the matter with that person too. So we'll see how that um, how that rolls out. But if you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. In fact, I did have an email from Charles on this issue. I had asked the question earlier, like, are you okay with this expansion of powers for pharmacists and paramedics and more, you know, family doctor spaces, more family resident, family medicine residencies? And, you know, Chuck wrote to say, I have absolutely no problem with increasing pharmacists' ability to prescribe medication. He said, I feel that we should have even more autonomy towards our own health care. All right. So there you go. You don't mind talking to your pharmacist rather than your family doctor for even getting a prescription, let alone renewing a prescription. Let me know. Send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You do get the sense that things are ramping up when it comes to our healthcare system, that plans are being made. This week we heard about the expansion possibly of, of, you know, training more doctors, of letting pharmacists do more. And we also heard about the worst case scenario plans for dealing with what is expected to be a very busy influenza season and of course combined with lots of COVID-19 still circulating in the community. That worst case scenario situation involves moving a lot of patients, hundreds and hundreds of them, out of our hospitals into long-term care homes. That's what we heard from Health Minister Adrian Dix. Problem is, the people who run long-term care homes say, hey, that's kind of news to us. So let's find out what's going on here. Joining us is Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Terry, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me, Simeon. Good morning. Good morning. So was there any notice, like was there any discussion about this before this week? No, uh, quite frankly, uh, and we were on a call with the ministry the the day before the announcement, so we were uh, surprised by it. Uh, Not that, um, you know, we don't uh, want to be helpful and and, uh, to be able to decant hospitals, make room for people that need those beds and look after people in the most appropriate space. But um, this is uh, not going to be easy to do because of the current situation in long-term care where we simply do not have enough staff to be able to open more beds and uh, take those patients. Yeah, is there any kind of a plan that is in place with a protocol where this this might happen? 
Uh, no, uh, not that I've seen anyway. Now, remember, one-third of long-term care beds in the province are operated by health authorities, so perhaps internally they've made some plans, but certainly they have not reached out to the providers of the other two-thirds of those long-term care uh, beds to uh, say, you know, here's here's how we hope to be able to, to accomplish this. Um, and we've made them well aware of the uh, the health human resource challenges that uh, we've been facing for years now. And, you know, the government has taken some very concrete action to train more health care aides, uh, more nursing spaces open. Uh, but uh, those, you know, those don't happen overnight. It takes a while to get that training and get into the workforce. And so we still find ourselves in many areas of the province uh, unable to keep beds open because we don't have enough staff to look after people safely. Right. So if you're having that problem on the private end of things, wouldn't they also be having that problem in the public long-term care system? Well, they've done a little better than the the, the contracted providers because, unfortunately, uh, they've recruited many of the staff away from uh, private uh, contracted providers by offering uh, more money and uh, bonuses that we simply aren't able to because we're not funded to do that. So, you know, it, there is a bit of an unlevel playing field out there that has caused uh, some uh, yeah, unbalance or imbalance in the system. And um, so health authorities may have more capacity to take people, but certainly I don't think they're going to be able to take all that, uh, you know, the government is looking at in terms of freeing up space in hospitals. Right. Is there room in the system, though, Terry, if this were to happen and the system were asked to take this on? Is it possible? If we had enough people, uh, Sydney, we could open uh, 500 beds and, and move people safely into long-term care, which is a more appropriate place than sitting in a, a hospital. Uh, but then, of course, uh, looking at additional home care, uh, the health authorities are struggling to meet the publicly supported uh, home care system today. They're using private providers on surge contracts. But as we've seen, uh, those private providers are struggling to get staff to be able to provide those hours. So, you know, you can only do so much with the number of people you have, which means we have to double down on uh, strategies uh, to alleviate this crisis. And that means looking at internationally educated nurses, getting them working in the system as quickly as possible at the healthcare aid level, perhaps, while they are being assessed to work as a nurse. And, And we just... There is some effort going on here, but it does not seem to be uh, really given the amount of uh, effort that's required. This this should be almost like a wartime effort to try to move people into the workforce that already have that training. Right. What is the COVID-19 situation these days in care homes? Well, it varies across the province. Uh, There's only, I believe, three uh, what are considered outbreaks at the moment, but there are a number of other homes that aren't considered an outbreak that may have nine or ten cases of COVID. It's just that they're not having uncontrolled spread, and certainly the the severity of illness is much, much less thanks to the vaccine, and of course the virus has changed in its virulence as well. So, uh, But when flu and COVID uh, resurge in you know, in the in the fall here, uh, that could change dramatically. And without people in place uh, to manage that, uh, we're going to be in trouble again. Yeah. Are you concerned? Is there a lot of concern in the system about the impact of influenza season? Yes, there's always uh, that concern. Every year uh, we see uh, influenza. With COVID, of course, we influenza kind of went away because of all the precautions we took over COVID. But 
Uh, now that um, you know life is returning to more normal situation, we expect to see more uh, influenza this year. Now, uh, everyone in long-term care is given a high-dose flu vaccine, and uh, they're going to combine that with the bivalent uh, fourth uh, dose of uh, the COVID vaccine. So we hope we can avoid any kind of serious uh, respiratory season this year, uh, but that still means we've got a lot of people to care for with not enough people to care for them. What, what do you want people to know, Terry, in terms of like, if people obviously have been returning to visit, you know, loved ones and friends in long-term care homes, how can we help? Well, first of all, uh, take all the precautions necessary. So, uh, you know, if you are uh, visiting someone in, in a care home, make sure you're not out at uh, events, indoor events, where there's lots of people where you may pick up the virus we do have uh, excellent screening protocols, in, including uh, rapid testing before you can visit a loved one in care. Uh, make sure you're washing your hands a lot, uh, wearing a mask when you're visiting. Uh, all of these things will reduce the potential impact of respiratory illness on our vulnerable uh, patients in long-term care. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about that this morning. Thanks for having me, Simi. Appreciate that. Terry Lake is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association They admit they're a little concerned after they heard this week that the worst case scenario plans for dealing with COVID-19 and influenza this upcoming season is to move patients out of hospitals to long-term care. As many as 1,800 patients who would be better served than in in long-term care. Problem is the the contracted side of the long-term care industry didn't even know anything about this. Where are they going to find the capacity to move 1,800 patients out of hospital in a worst-case scenario situation? That is the question. Now, if you've been going to visit a loved one, I would like to hear from you. I did this. I've been uh, visiting a relative in long-term care. And yeah, there are still definitely some screening procedures in place. And if you want to talk to me about what you've seen out there, let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this is a very unique day. We want to make sure that we, uh, you know, signify what the importance is of Truth and Reconciliation Day. So we thought, how better to do that than by having a co-host joining me on the show for a whole hour. So we are going to be doing that because we have with us Wilson Williams, who is here today. Wilson, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, we're going to join Wilson in just a second, though, because we've got to make sure his mic is working before he can talk to us about why he's actually here, uh, because we want to hear his stories. Hi, Wilson. Can you hear me now? Good morning. Oh, there How you, you doing, are. Simi? I'm good. Hot squile. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this this morning. Oh, thank you for having me and uh, providing this space. And it's uh, it's not only an honor, it's uh, um, and being able to provide the space to share some words and share a story and just... Uh, Meet some great people. Well, I am here to listen. So this morning, it is Mornings with Simi and Wilson uh, for the next hour of the show. But first off, tell us about yourself. You are a counselor with the Squamish Nation. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll first start off and just uh, open us up in a good way. And uh, just a greeting to all the listeners out there. Hot squall to know you. hot and squallowin. Chin kun min tomi up. Sweochten kun kushamin. Skohop misho chomeoch. Yekwapsum o chomeoch. Yuan uh, Hath. Just to reiterate, I just uh, introduced my myself, but also uh, welcome the beautiful day that we have uh, upon us today. 
and uh, acknowledged uh, my ancestral name, which is Swelchten. Uh, my English name is Wilson. But uh, I also connected myself to the land and where I come from. And uh, it's my name comes from Yaquapsum, which is uh, up in the Squamish Valley. Uh, honored to carry this name. And uh, also uh, acknowledged uh, I grew up in Oslohan Village in North Vancouver, part of the Squamish Nation. And uh, just honored to be here on the place name our, our ancestors references Kumkumale, which is the place of great maple trees here in, here in Vancouver. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an honor. That was so beautiful. Can I ask you, was the, was the language part of your life growing up? Did you learn that later or was it always a part of your life? Yeah, it's, it's not just the language. I think uh, the culture, the traditions weren't, weren't uh, where they are then into where we are today. It's right. been a journey, uh, you know, growing up uh, with uh, various barriers in regards to uh, both my parents being survivors of residential school. It, it wasn't a, a thing where I'd come home and you'd hear the language or hear a drum beating right. uh, to welcome the day with ceremony or a song. Uh, so it came sort of later, uh, I would say, after I graduated high school uh, for myself. And it's been a journey since then. It's been quite a beautiful journey to uh, connect myself to my true identity of where I come from. Can you talk a little bit about your parents? You said they're both survivors of residential schools. Were they able to talk about that, Wilson? Like, were they able to talk about that with you? Uh, no, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's been a challenge. Um, it's been quite a journey, uh, like I said, uh, growing up with... Uh, Two parents, uh, survivors of residential school, uh, day school in, uh, at St. Paul's. But um, they both uh, had a hard time. And I grew up as a young child not knowing. I basically grew up confused, just as them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I connect everything now. Um, but, but before, I was quite naive to um, the challenges of why our lives were a certain way. Um, domestic violence, uh, uh, alcoholism, um, and just those sort of instability uh, challenges of living in poverty, to be quite honest. But um, it was when I was about 20 years old I started realizing nev- not stop blaming them for, for, right. for any of the defaults that we uh, grew up in. I'm, a, I'm one of five ch- siblings. But uh, and I'm the middle child. Oh boy, oh boy, so many challenges. But Wilson, was there a moment? Was there something that you learned about that helped you put those pieces together? Yes, it was. It was being able to realize some of the. Um, and I, I grew up privileged to talk to a lot of uh, leaders in our community and family. Um, some that were direct and quite honest with me. My grandfather, before he passed away, uh, shared a lot with me that. I didn't recall and remember until I was a bit older, and I think it just came through and transpired through teachings that I that I had inside me, um, and you know, it was those kind of things where I, I realized, yeah, well, put that behind me and really try to support my parents and learn more about it and their experience, um, not directly through them because it was tough to talk. They didn't talk about it. Yeah, um, they, you know, they lived a life of confusion, to be honest. Uh, they they didn't speak the language. They didn't practice the culture. They they you know didn't have any connection to regalia. Um, they spoke of really passionately about 
their parents, their grandparents, and uh, their lives with them. Right. But, but those opportunities were taken from them, weren't they? Yeah. It was, uh, it was, like I said, a life of confusion, but at the same time, um, I'll give you an example of going to residential school and not being able to practice who you are and where you come from. And I'll, I'll put it quite simply of saying the language. And I share this, and it's okay. My father and mom are okay with it. <laughs> is uh, They would live a confusion of living foreign curriculum or going to school uh, and then going home and my father going home to his grandma speaking just Skoholtmish Nechem, which is our Squamish language. And being living in those worlds of, um, you know, we all... It's been a teaching. We all have our skills, but we all have um, our, our, our duty to do something in our community, Where whether we're berry pickers or fishermen. Uh, our family came from a long line of uh, harvesting and growing uh, orchards and fruit trees and, and stuff like that. But, you know, so these weren't there for them, these yeah. stability sort of um, things that, weren't alive for them so it was a confused life and um when you were able to start talking to them about this wilson did you did things change for them were they was that able to help them that there was that recognition like even from their children at that point yeah it did i I think it i can't it's a bit of a catch-22 because um i was very mindful of triggering any trauma from the residential school um it was only when we filled out the day school application class action day school uh, that I actually had to sit down with them. And it was me out of my siblings to, to do so. When the I was, middle child, right? Yeah, yeah. and I was um, the one to talk to them. And it was, it was very challenging, so I took my time. I think it took two years to really... Wow, to go um, through the whole process. Just to oh. ask them the experience. Um, and I'm sure they didn't share everything with me. Yeah. But um, I'm, I'm very grateful for that they did. It was not only hard for them, it was uh, quite emotional for me. Um, yeah. I'm very grateful to be able to carry an ancestral name that comes along with learning the history of our, our villages and our people and our cultural ceremonial practices and what we say uh, our SEMCO, our medicine, that uh, finding ways of grounding yourself. So I, I'm very grateful for that because... During hard times of uh, challenges or stress, that uh, I'll just go up to the up to the find a cold lake or river and jump in and uh, and have a bath and to cleanse myself to Amazing. come back. And I, I I learned that by preparing t- for my uh, ancestral name ceremony. I want to hear all about this. I know you've got stories to tell us, yep. and we're going to be doing that because you're going to be with us for the rest of the show this morning. Uh, but there's events. And before before we take a break, Wilson, what what do you hope, like people today who are listening to you, your stories, to other stories, like what do you hope that people will get out of having a day like today? Yeah, I'm hoping that they connect with something in their community, something that connects them to either the you know, I'll be going back to North Van to the pilgrimage march uh, right after this to have a formal send-off and speak to them because it's uh, Skohotmish Village and they're starting there. And I'm hoping they just retain, you know, some kind of connection to Indigenous ways of life or the connection to some of the history and the truths that are coming out. But connect with people and build that relationship. I think, 
I think that's what it's all about, connecting with people. I've had the privilege to maybe 10 or 12 friends and people I don't even know reach out to me and say, how can I participate or I'm interested in going into an event or ceremony to honour the, the residential school students? Well, Wilson's going to help us out with that. And I have a feeling we are starting our own tradition right here, Wilson, because I'm already thinking I want you back next year for this too. So Wilson is going to stay with us. We are talking about our day of truth and reconciliation here on Mornings with Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. This is our National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. It's an important day. It's a significant day, and we want to make sure that people honor that, and they you have all the tools to be able to do that, the stories, the, the memories that go with that. My co-host this hour is Wilson Williams from the Squamish First Nation. And Wilson, we were having a great chat there uh, during the break, and you were talking about your daughter, who is, you were saying, getting more and more involved. Yeah, um... This past summer, we traveled up to Kamloops uh, for work and, of course, with summer break and the family together, um, I was able to take my family up with me and um, on, just as we arrived over that hill there by Kamloops, uh, my middle daughter, Trilene, shared that uh, if we can go visit the Kamloops uh, residential school site and I was quite taken by this and I, I looked over to my wife and... Uh, you know, gave the gave the look of should we, <laughs> kind of thing, and uh, and we both nodded our heads and said, yeah, of course we can, and um, of course from there we wanted to make sure we are um, being sensitive to because we have a seven year old daughter Pearl that uh, was there as well, and uh, Trillian is twelve, so we wanted to make sure we wanted to share a bit of story. Of course, that leads into a bit of you know the sensitivities around the two hundred and fifteen. Um, unmarked graves that were found so we wanted to sort of share that story but not not too much but uh, we ended up visiting that uh, but I really wanted to just highlight that the voice my daughter was the courage she had to use her voice and ask and to resonate so much with uh, me and my wife because it's it's something our parents um, my wife's parents are also survivors but they weren't able to use their voice because yeah. they didn't think it mattered and I'm thinking was, about all the parents today, too, who wonder, like, how much do you share uh, with the kids? And you're, you're, even though you've got such deep family history in this, you struggle with the same thing. Yeah, and I think it's, 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 a, it's a thing that uh, all nations throughout, uh, not just BC, and it's all throughout Canada, how we need to really safeguard our children and what we share. Yeah. But at the same time, um, I think it's up to us as families to really find that niche with you know, and protect our children at school, but at the same time, uh, be with them and on that journey of learning and that education, but love them. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is why we have Wilson here, right? To teach us all of this this morning. And you have a guest, you're going to introduce us to a friend of yours. Who do we have? Yeah. Um, my dear cousin and friend and colleague, uh, Chief Jen Thomas is joining us this morning. Uh, welcome, Jen. Yes. Good morning. And thank you for having me. It's an honor. I, 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 uh, thank you for answering the call and uh, just wanted to send you uh, love, strength and prayers at this time. Uh, I know how hard you work and uh, we cross paths every other day now, but uh, yeah. just I know that uh, our communities are going through such a hard time uh, sending off some loved ones, uh, one matriarch today, but at the same time we're preparing ourselves uh, uh, for for providing that asemco and medicine for 
loved ones we're preparing to send off are just yes. coming together as family. So just really wanted to hold you up, uh, Jen. Thank you for that. Jen, thank you for being with us. Can you give us an idea of what the Slaywatooth community is doing today? We we are doing our p- pilgrimage walk, but this year we are walking back from the St. Paul's Residential School to our community. Um, last last year we walked from our community to the school, and basically we're retracing the steps of for instance, my father, Stan Thomas, who would have to walk from our community to the school on a weekly basis, or, you know, he would even have his older brother, you take your younger brother to school. So, you know, my dad's older brothers would have to walk him to school, get him, bring him back home. And this walk started um, in my cousin Gabe, George's, late Leonard George's son, he had the idea of retracing his dad's steps um, along this path. So that's what we're doing. Can any of us join? Yes. And so where would we get more information about that? Um, It is on the Slow Tooth Nation website um, on the front page. Uh, We are leaving the site of St. Paul's at 10 a.m., and along 3rd Street, all the way here. Awesome. Uh, thanks, Jen, for sharing that. I, um, just, I'll be joining you as well in doing a formal send-off uh, from Oslohan Village. The direct location is the, the St. Paul's Residential School Monument uh, yes. found at the St. Thomas Aquinas uh, site. Am I correct? Yes. Awesome. And uh, I know um, excited to, but also at the same time, ready to embrace our family and friends that will be joining us. Um, is it, I think um, I, read a, I heard in the wind there earlier that uh, you're requesting some of the public to join, uh, create a wall along the yes. path. Yes. Uh, yes. We've asked uh, people to support along the route. And like last year, I remember it was really amazing. We had all ages. We had little ones to elders along the route. They were shaking hands. Some children were giving our elders flowers along the route. So it was really touching. And, you know, it was was a really great feeling. And this year, I know it's going to be bigger. And uh, what's, can you outline some of the route? for the um the walk so we're walking down forbes along third street we'll be coming down third street hill and then i believe it turns into main street it's just one straight path all the way okay and you know it sounds so hopeful what you both have been talking about this morning so i I would like if you could both answer this and jen i'll start with you It, it sounds like you're getting more and more people participating like do you feel that we have turned a corner do you feel that we are all paying attention now i believe we have more people paying attention we're not quite there yet and i've shared this um on another interview, you know, we may not see the big change that we as Indigenous people are looking for, but we're making it easier for our future generations. Yeah, I think I think this journey has been 
easier this these recent years, especially being able to provide the space with uh, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation to be able to put our um, turn our computers off or turn our phones off. Yes. To to really just sort of not just pay attention, but to embrace and for me and Jen come together with family and really, really just, you don't even have to say much. It's being together, being able to, if we're walking together or, you know, just having that hug to embrace each other, but also at the same time, when we use our voice, it's a voice of love and compassion and just saying things like, I'm there for you. How do you think we can keep this momentum going? I mean, this is our second Truth and Reconciliation Day. How do we make sure that it's like this on our, you know, 50th Truth and Reconciliation Day? Um, I'll let Jen answer first. Jen? (laughs) (laughs) Um, We just have to keep sharing our stories and having our stories shared, acknowledged. And, um, you know, this this is a journey together. So we as Indigenous people have to take those steps with our non-Indigenous communities and just find that path and keep moving forward together. Exactly. And just to add, um, it's not just one day we celebrate, honor, honor our loved ones and, uh, and share it's, it's, it's daily for not, not just indigenous people, but we want to encourage the, you know, if we're going to be a stronger community, um, a better Vancouver, it's embracing each other's identity of who we are and where we come from and really sharing not just truth, but truths of who we are as peoples. Uh, we're very multicultural. We want to live in harmony. This is the path to it. And we've come a long way from last year where we're providing spaces and, hey, I'm in a CKNW studio co-hosting. And we thank you for that. And, yeah. <laughs> and, but at the same time, we, you know, I, I got the honor to stand with Jen uh, on the ice last night at the Canucks game. And I'll be seeing her tonight as well, I think, at the BC Lions game. Yeah, But fantastic. it's a time it's for, the, you know, put on our orange shirts. It's like uh, putting on our protection blanket for tonight. But at the same time, we'll be so honoring our people daily. And today, it's a time to share that with the general community. I love that visual that you just gave, that the orange shirt is a protection blanket. Jen, before we let you go, you, you talked about getting inviting the public to create that wall, uh, that wall of protection. Where where do we need to go? People go, I would like to do this. Just can you remind us, where do we need to go to do that? Um, there's a big spot along um, the Brooks Bank and Main Street in front of like the old park in Tilford Theater there. Yeah. A lot of people stand there. Um, it, last year, we just seen it along the whole route. Um, so anywhere along Third Street, Main Street. I look forward to seeing this. I, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, Jen, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you, Jen. Yep. That Bye. is Jen Thomas, who's the uh, First Nation Chief of the tsleil First Nation. Uh, what a great event that is going to be, Wilson. Like, just seeing that, it, it must get emotional. I, yeah, I, I'm getting uh, your, goosebumps, uh, yeah, right? I'm getting the goosebumps here. Um, you know, it just resonates so well because um, I really understand the wholesomeness of why the pilgrimage march has started. And it, it resonates because it's the pathways are our parents, our grandparents took to go to the school. Um, I just visualized my parents walking up and walking home. Um, So I'll be sharing that story with my parents uh, tonight before I go to the Lions game to pop in and 
Uh, I usually bring my mom some dinner or something. So You know what? I want to hear about your parents too, but we're going to have more <laughs> with Wilson today on this Truth and Reconciliation Day next. This is Mornings with Simi. On this Truth and Reconciliation Day, my co-host this hour is Wilson Williams from the Squamish First Nation. And you mentioned your parents there just before we took a break. How are they? Oh, they're doing okay. They're doing well. Um, I'm hoping they're listening right now. I've been trying to send that. Jeez, I would hope so. Wilson. Contemporary smoke signal <laughs> to my parents to uh, tune in. I do that. I did that yesterday for the Canucks game. But uh, even regardless, if they missed it, I'll be going and sharing that story with them. It, it, it's the it's the conversation piece that I'll be having uh, tea and toast with my mom to share with, and uh, really uh, connects me. You know, it's an old, old ways of uh, come on in, don't don't be a stranger. Let's have some tea and toast. Uh, stay a while. I would like to come over and have some tea and toast. It's my very favorite thing. What do they think though about all of this? What do they think of people showing up, of non-Indigenous people showing up, of, of seeing orange shirts everywhere, of seeing this recognition? Yeah, I. Uh, they light up. They light up that. Uh, because there's hope for tomorrow. And I share the story of my daughter using their voice, and it's their granddaughter that's uh, lighting their day up. And uh, my mother, who loves pictures, and, you know, when I talked earlier about um, them not being, you know, practicing their history or knowing, you know, their culture and stuff like that, it doesn't mean they didn't acquire it. And, and naturally came out as they lived. And my dad, my father, was the one who taught me how to fish and connected me to the rivers and took me to the river at four in the morning. And, and, and I was like eight years old. Didn't and, appreciate and, it then, though, did you? I right? was cold. But, and my mother, she's a beautiful artist. Uh, she does beautiful beadwork. And um, she's unable to do it now due to uh, side effects of uh, a stroke recently or a few years ago. But uh, it's things like this where, you know, they found that, that, that their calling and yeah. their, their, their way in life. You know, Wilson, in case they're not listening, please send them our blessings from CKNW and tell them thank you so much for their story. And so before we go, we have a couple minutes left. I just I want to thank you because this has been so amazing for me this morning to hear, you know, like this from you. And you've been so much fun. What do you what do you want people to take out of today? Give me, this is your time. Yeah, I think, you know, not only just connecting yourself with uh, events across the country today, I, I wanted to share and, you know, I started the day with. Uh, traditional welcome and acknowledging and saying our our Skohope Mission HM and place names. I you know, I wanted to share that because, you know, when I speak the language and I have the fortune of my wife who's a language teacher and she's on a great journey, but really grounds myself when I'm able to open up and identify who I am and where I come from in the language and it connects me to the land personally and our ancestors that only spoke that language of the land um, in our villages and to our people. So I really wanted to encourage and have that openness because I do with other languages today as well. Connects, it connects me to them. And you find that that interpersonal connection. And if you learn a place name or just showing that winouks, that respect um, and that mutual respect, there's that that connectivity that's hard to share in words. What was that word again? Winox. Winox. It's, it's, it's a word we use in our uh, language that's respect. Respect for one another and showing that respect. So um, well, I just encourage the, you know, if it's not um, 
and I hate butchering any languages, <laughs> but in, 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 it's all in the in your heart to really try. And it, I'm still on that journey, but uh, I, I just wanted to share that connection with what it means with the language. Well, for all of us then, Winox with Slim oh, Wilson, thank you for sharing that with us today. And please come back next year. Oh, I sure will. And you can check out what is happening for Truth and Reconciliation Day in your community, checking out those events. So important on a day like this. We thank Wilson Williams for being our co-host this hour on the show. This is Mornings with Simi. 